Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 12. My name is Rick. I'm author of many books, uh, general editor of the Jesus Center Bible, and a few years ago, author of the Jesus Centered Life, from which this very podcast emerged. Because uh, uh, my old partner in crime, the Becky Nader, Becky Harrington, and I were pondering one day about what, how we could uh, translate the message of the Jesus-centered life into sort of an on, ongoing community, a way of engaging and going deeper with this into our everyday life. And a podcast emerged, <laughs> and this is our sixth season of this. So um, the, the most recent book that I published uh, that you've heard me talk about before many times is the Jesus Center Daily, a daily devotional that was released in October you can always head over to my uh, the website I created for this little devotional, thejesuscenteredaily.com. It's actually jesuscenteredaily.com to be precise. And you can get a free sampler there and watch an intro video or just order it if you want. It's a great, great little gift for Easter, someone that you uh, have been thinking about that you would like to um, support and encourage in their journey with Jesus, this is a perfect way to do it. So Jesus Center Daily, it's available right now. Um, you can order it off of jesuscenteredaily.com or just go to Amazon if you like. So this is the fourth episode in a new series that I'm calling Jesus People. We're simply exploring the heart of Jesus through the lens of both his friends and his enemies and the people he encounters along the way. That's because you can really learn a lot about a person by simply paying closer attention to the people that love him and also the people that, well, don't love him. <laughs> you can learn a lot about his impact and get a greater sense of what it meant to be around Jesus, what impact he had when you were around him. Um, I'm, I'm going to keep quoting P, uh, Dr. Peter Kreeft here in this series, the Boston University professor and C.S. Lewis scholar who um, just so well captured what it might have felt like to actually meet Jesus. He called it Jesus shock. Here's a little snippet of, what, of how he describes what that must have felt like. Christ changed every human being he ever met. If anyone claims to have met him without being changed, he's not met him at all. When you touch him, you touch lightning. Such a great description. So no matter where you're coming from, when you meet Jesus, you, you leave changed um, because he has this catalytic impact on everyone he meets. And so, and, and of course, that catalytic impact is different for each person we, uh, uh, he meets. So if we explore those people as if they were facets of a diamond or lenses, let's just say, <laughs> To, to peer into the heart of Jesus, maybe we'll discover some things that we haven't really considered about him before. So in this episode, we're going to explore the heart of Jesus through the lens of a notorious woman who became one of those in Jesus' inner circle. She's important also to focus on uh, as this podcast comes out during Holy Week, uh, 
because this woman was there at every step along the way. She was there along the Via Dolorosa as Jesus dragged the cross. She was there on Golgotha as Jesus was nailed to that cross and, and uh, tortured and, and ultimately uh, gave up his spirit to his father. She was there at the tomb when he was buried, the, the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea arranged for. He, she was there to, to watch him be buried with the stone rolling across the entrance to that tomb. And she was there at the tomb when he rose from the dead. Her name, of course, is Mary Magdalene. And it's interesting because there's a, a lot of fiction that has swirled up around the person of Mary Magdalene um, in film and in stories and even historians adding to some of the lore around Mary Magdalene. Some say that she was a prostitute who was redeemed. There's not a great deal of evidence to support that claim. In fact, there likely was another Mary who was a prostitute, not this Mary. And uh, But Mary Magdalene is, it stands out because of the central role she plays in Jesus' life and ministry. So here's just a quick overview of Mary and her relationship to Jesus. First of all, it has to be said, she is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. <laughs> we find a lot of Marys in the Gospels. That's because Mary was the most common name back in the ancient time of Jesus for women. Uh, so it's necessary to delineate the Marys as we're talking about them. And this is probably why the gospel writers refer to this Mary as Mary Magdalene. Um, she's mentioned by name 12 times in the gospels, and that's more often than most of the apostles and more than any other woman other than in Jesus's family. She became a, a prominent figure in Jesus's inner circle, and she must have had some wealth because we know that she helped finance his ministry. Among his female followers, she's always listed first. You can think of it in much the same way that Peter is always listed first among the male apostles. Mary Magdalene is always listed first. So she plays a key role, especially uh, uh, among the women who were the first to follow Jesus. And the gospel accounts um, describe that this uh, circle of women followed Jesus and were with him just as much as his 12 disciples were. They were part of his circle, his traveling circle of those who went with him everywhere. The Magdalene likely means that she came from the town of Magdala. It's a fishing town on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was in Palestine during her time, but today it's part of Israel. So most likely Magdalene was a way of referring to where she came from in the first place, this little fishing town on the Sea of Galilee. One of the uh, difficult and dark aspects of who Mary Magdalene is, now, let's separate out that, that sort of sense that she was a former prostitute because we don't have enough evidence for that. But what we do have evidence for is that she was possessed by seven demons and that Jesus had exercised them from her. You can find that account in Luke chapter 8. Now, she'd likely had many, many attempts throughout her life to confront and expel these demons in her life. You know, there's some controversy around um, in these uh, scriptural accounts of those who are demon-possessed. 
it was quite normal and natural for people to assume that people that had psychological issues were also possessed by a demon. So we can likely assume that some people were actually oppressed or possessed by demonic influences, and some people had severe psychological damage and that appeared to be like demon possession to those around them. Um, we don't know which of these most describes Mary Magdalene, but either way, she suffered from severe emotional and social trauma because of this. Um, the, 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 the fact that she was known as a person who had been possessed by seven demons meant that everyone around her knew this narrative about her. This was part of her identity, that she had struggled with such trauma um, in her life that uh, she was known by it. Uh, what would it feel like to be known and identified and described by your trauma? Um, what would it feel like to be that person? When, when Jesus said, I have come to set captives free, this is his mission statement at the start of his ministry, I have come to set captives free, you can assume that no one could relate better to this promise than Mary Magdalene. She was a prisoner of her own demonic oppression. It marked her life. It was the thing, it was the hub that her life swirled around. It was the thing that drove others from her. It was the thing that those who loved her had to get past in order to love her. It represented her deepest aspect of her identity to her. It's the thing that she could, uh, that she would wake up in the morning thinking about. And when she went to bed at night would still be thinking about this is who she was locked up and captive to this demonic oppression that had shattered her life and colored her life in every way. She's also among a small group of women and the apostle John who we mentioned uh, witness, actually witness Jesus' crucifixion. Now, this took guts. Uh, remember that they had arrested and were about to, uh, to sentence Jesus to capital punishment and then carry it out in public. And all of the rest of the disciples had scattered because they thought they were next. They, they, they reasonably thought that the uh, Jewish religious leaders and their and uh, the the Roman uh, structures, the political structures, military structures, would be conspiring to round up the whole lot of them, get rid of them all at once, to make sure that nothing rose out of this rebellion. So it made perfect sense that that all of them lived in fear of being captured and and being given the similar fate as Jesus was facing on Golgotha. So the fact that these women who were well known to be followers of Jesus stood there um, close enough to the cross to witness the Jesus execution and that the only male disciple who showed up there at the cross was the apostle John. In addition to the, this small group of women, it tells you something about that group right there. These four women um, plus Paul, plus the apostle John who risked their lives to stand and watch all of it. And even more so, after they lowered Jesus's body from the cross, 
Mary follows uh, uh, follows the the little entourage um, Joseph of Arimathea and John to bury Jesus in this in, in this uh, uh, brand new tomb. So she not only is standing there next to the cross, she outs herself again by following all the way to the burial. So you can start to get inside the heart and head of Mary Magdalene and realize that um, risking her life on behalf of Jesus was part of her DNA, that something so huge, so profound, so freedom-giving had happened in her life that she was willing to lose her life for him, that she was not afraid to risk it when, when the threat of death was very real. She and Mary uh, witnessed this burial, and later, Mary, the mother of Jesus, I mean, and later, she is the first to encounter the risen Jesus in John's gospel account. Um, we're going to take a deep dive into that in just a minute, but she has a solo encounter with Jesus. Um, uh, she's the first to discover the, the, the stone rolled aside, and she's the first to actually encounter the risen Jesus who then goes on, she then goes on to, to tell all of the other disciples that Jesus has risen. What's interesting about this is that if the gospel account had been um, simply a fiction created by Jesus's disciples to elevate him into Messiah status after the fact, if it, if it had been done like that, they would never have chosen a woman, especially a woman who had been possessed by seven demons to be the primary witness to this. Um, women weren't even allowed as witnesses in court during that time. Um, so if they were making the story up, they never would have put a character, if you want to call her that, like Mary Magdalene as the primary witness to the resurrection of Jesus. So in the fact that Jesus first appears to her is a important um, marker itself. So, so, uh, She's often referred to by historians as the first apostle because of this, or the apostle to the apostles. She has this very prominent, influential role. So I, now that we've had a little bit of um, peering under the hood with Mary Magdalene, I want you to uh, slowly try to put yourself in her shoes. Um, what would it feel like to live a life that was marked by? possession by seven demons and thinking that your identity was intertwined with this and that there was nothing you could do about it. And that maybe many times others, uh, other religious leaders had tried to free you from this captivity and nothing had worked. Well, what's, what's something about yourself that you wish you could change? I don't mean something related to your circumstances in life, but something centrally about who you are. What's something about who you are that you really wish you could change? Maybe it's something that you feel like you inherited in your DNA from your family. Or maybe it's something that has always caused pain in your relationships with others. Maybe it's something that you never talk about and you rarely even bring up to yourself, but it's always present. It's always there. You're, all, you're always aware of this something about yourself that you wish could just change, could be different. I know this is a, a really vulnerable question. Um, 
if if I asked you to share this, even with someone who you were very close to or a family member, it would likely be really hard to share it even with them, whatever that thing is. It's just so vulnerable because it's just so tied to how you see yourself, how you've always seen yourself. What would it, what would it feel like to actually write down on paper what that thing is? Even if you knew that you were going to throw that paper away and no one would ever see it. What would it feel like to write down that thing about yourself that you wish could change if you could? I think even just doing that would feel vulnerable. Now, think about what sort of impact that one thing has had on your life. I mean, what kind of outcomes has that produced in your life? What what, how has it challenged your life? How has it made your life more difficult? How has it broken things? Um, I think um, if, when I think about my own one thing um, and, and what one, that one thing would feel like for, for many others, I think of words like shame and frustration and doubt and grief and helplessness and fear and emptiness. This one thing uh, for most of us isn't really, we don't really treat it like a characteristic uh, of ourselves. It's more like our embedded identity. We are that thing, whatever it is. So how can, so thinking again about Mary Magdalene, how can we find healing or restoration from something that is literally who I am? Uh, that, that's a different kind of deal, isn't it? It's how, how can you replace what is foundational to me? How can you treat something that is intertwined with my identity? You know, the doctor can tell you that you have a cancer and offer a treatment for removing it or killing it, uh, let's say killing it with chemo. But what if the whole of yourself is a cancer? What if you think of yourself as uh, irretrievably flawed or infected by something that you just can't change. Well, there is no cure for that, is there? Um, the cures <clears throat> aren't really cures. They're just things that cover over the symptoms, cover over the outcomes from that behavior. Um, <clears throat> we're quite good at hiding this one thing, by the way, that we wish we could change. We're quite good at compensating for it and keeping it from the prying eyes of others. We're quite good at protecting it so that no one really ever sees it. Because if they did see it, well, what would happen then? Uh, we feel like we're saddled with it for the rest of our lives, for better or for worse. And the best we can do is medicate it so that we don't feel its impact as much and uh, readjust and reorient and acclimate our life around it <clears throat> to reduce the impact of it in our life. Really, if, if the whole of you is a cancer, only a wholesale rebirth can solve that problem. No, um, no chemo treatment is going to help us to change out what seems fundamental to us. So let's explore the longest stretch of insight we have about Mary Magdalene 
from John's gospel. Now, remember, John is the disciple Jesus loved. That was in our last episode. Uh, so John was marked by his passion for Jesus. This is the filter through which John sees everything. John was a passionate person whose heart, uh, who led with his heart, and who understood Jesus through the lens of the heart. Um, so think about that, because John is the only gospel writer <clears throat> to go into great detail about Mary Magdalene's role um, in Holy Week, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I want you to remember that as we, as we move through this story that John records, think about how, how his passion for Jesus, his heart-first way of living, relates to the details of Jesus' life that he decides to write about. So we know that Jesus said and did many things that are not recorded in Scripture. The Scripture tells us this, that it's only a selective choosing of things that Jesus said and did that we have access to in the Scriptures. There's many, many more things Jesus said and did. And that means that all four Gospels differ in the stories they tell about him because all four Gospels are written by separate people. They're not car carbon copies of each other. There are four different perspectives on the life of Jesus, and each gospel writer chooses different stories and details to talk about based on their own lens. And so that's why it's important to pay attention to why John is the only writer of the gospels who goes into this sort of detail about Mary Magdalene. He's doing it because what Mary Magdalene does and who she represents fits his own lens that this way of understanding Jesus to taste and see that he's good by, by drawing near to his heart, by opening your heart, even more than you've opened your head to him. This is John's way of seeing Jesus. And I think it's the reason why he was so drawn to the details of Mary Magdalene. He saw the same thing in her because every writer focuses on the story of Jesus from a unique perspective. So let's, Let's dive into John this John 20 account of Mary Magdalene. Try to understand what Jesus meant to her and why. Again, we're looking at Jesus through the lens of Mary. We're going to try to understand what Jesus meant to her and why he meant that to her. Um, let's look at him through the lens of her heart and of her life narrative. Again, let's one more time as we dive into this. She's a woman who believed she was a cancer. And there is no hope of fixing an operating system in your computer that has been wholly compromised. No chemo can attack the whole of you without killing you, right? If the cancer is all of you, chemotherapy would just kill you if you used it. So Jesus said this, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's in John 12, 24. So here Jesus is saying that part of finding life is that our kernel of wheat, the kernel of wheat here representing our very identity, the whole of our operating system, unless it falls into the ground and dies, it just remains a single seed. It just remains a seed trying to make its way through life as best it can, acclimating itself around the cancer that is itself. It just remains a single seed. But Jesus said, if it dies, it produces many seeds. Life emerges out of the death of the kernel of wheat. When Jesus tells uh, the Pharisee Nicodemus that you must be born again, 
What he's really saying is that born again requires a kind of death and resurrection of our identity, a death and resurrection of our operating system, what is most fundamental to us. This is not a tweak to our character. It's not a discipline that we adopt to live a better and closer and more religious life. It's a wholesale rebirth that requires the death of the kernel of wheat first. And this is essentially what happens with Mary Magdalene. Everything that existed in the background of her identity, the, the echoes of who she really was that really got drowned out by what was always in the foreground for her, which was her fundamental flaw, her fundamental brokenness. Um, everything that existed in the background of her identity is now, after Jesus touches her and speaks to her and invites her into relationship, all of that that was in the background is now in the foreground. And the cancer that was her foreground is now in the background. All right. As I read this account, what I want you to think about is what do we know for sure about Jesus through the eyes of Mary Magdalene? Think about that as I read this account, starting verse 1, chapter 20, the Gospel of John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that would be John, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So picture this, they're at, they're at the tomb. They see the stone rolled, rolled aside. They go inside the tomb. They see Jesus's body is not there. Everything is in order. It's lined carefully folded, but he's not there. And, but they, they don't yet understand anything. And they go back to where they were staying, but Mary Magdalene stays there. She does not return with them. Picking up in verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman? Why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. There you have this account, the short account in John 20, but it's pretty detailed. 
And what I asked you to think about as I was reading that is, well, what do we know for sure about Jesus just through the eyes of Mary Magdalene? What do we know for sure about her? Well, let's start back in verse one of chapter 20 here. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went out to the tomb. While it was still dark, she was alone in the dark. Something compelled her to go to the tomb. Something had happened on the, uh, on, on the cross and in the burial of Jesus that she just couldn't shake. It wasn't like she was ready to move on now. She wasn't. She wanted to go to the tomb while it was still dark and just sit there. What was she expecting? Not that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She wasn't expecting to get inside the tomb. She couldn't possibly. She just had to be near Jesus. In our darkest moments, when we're most full of doubt, when we don't know which way to turn, and we wish we could turn back the clock, and that whatever that thing is that happened had never happened in the first place, in those moments when we are there, do we feel still compelled to just go sit by the tomb, to go sit in front of our lost hope? Um, are we drawn to Jesus, even when we think Jesus has been removed from us? Are we so compelled and so tied to him and so identified with him that though we don't feel his presence, we crave his presence? And so we move toward his presence in whatever way we can. And I think this is what Mary is doing here. She has to be near the person of Jesus, even though she knows, because she saw it with her own eyes, he, he was dead and buried, but she can't stop loving him. It's almost like a gravitational pull that she has in her heart because she has so invested herself in the heart of Jesus that she can't help but try to be near him, even if it's simply his body inside a tomb. And, and uh, she sees that the stone has been removed, and so she immediately runs back to Simon Peter and the other disciples while it's still dark, wakes them up most likely, and tells them that he, his body's been stolen. She assumes that there's been some kind of conspiracy and someone has removed the body of Jesus. And she is extremely upset by this. Um, she knows he's dead and buried, but it's important to her that, his, <clears throat> that she knows where he is still. Again, this gravitational pull. And so the other two disciples peer into the tomb. Mary stands outside. They feel convinced that at this point that someone has taken away the body, and now they're going to go back to the other disciples and decide what to do next. Now they're going to have to figure out who went in there and took the, took the body of Jesus, um, and how will we get it back? Instead, Mary just stands outside of the tomb, just weeping. She's shattered by what's happened. This, how can, how can this be the next grief she has to, to bear? And she bends over to look in the tomb. And there are two angels who did not appear to the other two disciples. They were not there when they entered the, the tomb. But they're there for Mary. Um, one seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and, and the other at the foot. Um, and the angels ask her, woman, why are you crying? Now, imagine, uh, Mary has seen two angels. 
two men that weren't there when the two disciples left. She knows that those two men weren't in the tomb. And now they are as soon as the other two disciples leave. They're miraculously present in the tomb. For most people, they would be freaked out of their minds that this is happening. So when they ask her, why are you crying? She, she answers, though, out of her passion. It doesn't even matter to her, the supernatural thing happening in front of her. They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. She has so invested herself and so identified herself with the one who has rescued her from her darkness, from her captivity, that Jesus means everything to her now. It's almost as if um, she's become even more single-focused after his death on the cross and burial. She's, her passion for him has only grown, not lessened. And the fact that angels are asking her this question is, is like a minor detail to her. She has a burning desire to discover what has happened to her dear, dear Jesus. And she turns around and sees Jesus standing there, but it, the scripture says that she doesn't recognize him as Jesus at the moment. And so this man, um, whoever he is, suddenly asks her, well, why, why are you crying? The same question that the angels asked, who is it that you're looking for? Kind of a playful question, if you think about it, coming from Jesus. Of course, he knows who he's looking for. Uh, underneath that uh, hooded face, or whatever reason she didn't recognize him immediately, there's a little smile on Jesus' face. Even in this intense and epic moment, he is playful with her. Who is it you're looking for? She thought he was the gardener, so she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And when Jesus calls her by name, she knows him. She realizes who he is because he's, of course, the first one to truly call her by name, to identify her for who she really is, to bring what was in the background into the foreground, to mark her by her true identity, to be the only one in her life who's ever seen her for who she really is. And so he says, Mary, and names her. And she knows immediately he is the one who has named her. So she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which, which means teacher, and he, she can't help herself. She goes to just hold him, and he has to have her back up. For whatever reason, he says, it's not, it's not right to hold on to me right now, for he hasn't ascended to the Father. But in, instead, he says, go tell my brothers that he's ascending to the Father. And so Mary leaves him and rushes back to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. Against all odds, this woman who gave over her heart to Jesus, um, who couldn't imagine a life without Jesus, who goes to the tomb early in the morning in the darkness to be near the body of Jesus because she can't separate herself from him yet. Um, she, hope against hope, the seeds of what Jesus said to his disciples all along that after three days he would rise again. She is the first to fully embrace the reality of this. She knows it's him. She knows it's him because only one person has ever truly identified her for the beautiful, wondrous, amazing person that she is. And it's him. And of course, he does the same thing in our life. Have we experienced Jesus in this way? 
Well, this is the point of the podcast, really. It's the point of my life. It's trying to help people simply slow down and taste and see the goodness of Jesus. Taste and see um, what a wonder he is. To be overcome and overwhelmed and infected by his heart. So much so that we can't separate our identity from the love that we have for Jesus. We have to be near him no matter how much doubt and darkness is in our life. We have to be near him. So on the cusp of Easter, will you reach out to hold the hand of Jesus and travel with him through the Friday of crucifixion, the three days of waiting and doubt, and the Sunday of resurrection? Today, today, offer to him, all of you, the whole kernel of wheat. I'll, uh, put it into his hands and, so that he will plant it in the ground, allowing what you thought was you to die, so that what is truly you can be reborn again. Will you do that today in Holy Week? To offer over to him whatever that dark thing is. Whatever that thing you wish could change, can you offer that to him as your kernel of wheat? Maybe, maybe it's so entwined in you that you think of it as the whole of you. If that's so, give, it, give the whole of you to him so that he can plant it in the ground and you can experience the death of that false identity so that your true identity can be reborn again. That's the invitation of Good Friday and Easter. All right, gang, thanks for listening. You can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for season six, episode 12, for links to anything we've talked about today. Um, again, that's season six, episode 12, painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. And this podcast is produced by RickLawrence.com. And you, of course, can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you again next week.